Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Christopher Fort about his new translation, Night and Day, by Abdulhamid Sulaiman Ogri Chopan. Dr. Fort holds a PhD in Slavic Languages and Literatures from the University of Michigan and an MA in Russian Area Studies from Ohio State University. His dissertation explores the relationship between Russian and Uzbek socialist realist literature in the 20th century. He argues that, while deeply influenced by Russian socialist realist forms, Uzbek socialist realist literature developed in a unique fashion that reflected both local traditions and the literary innovations of Uzbekistan's turn-of-the-century Muslim reformers. In addition uh, to translating Night and Day, he is also the translator of the Uzbek author Isjan Sultan's The Eternal Wanderer. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and, and I'm really excited today to talk about your, your newest translation. Uh, but before we get into that, I was hoping you could tell us uh, a little bit about your, your educational background, how you got interested in Central Asia, and specifically in uh, kind of Uzbek literature uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Sure. Um, well, you hit on my uh, degrees there, so I, I guess I can really start with how I became interested in Uzbek. And that all started um, during, uh, during undergrad um, when I was at Michigan State. I actually ran out of well, – my main interest was Russian, um, but I ran out of Russian classes after three years. And so I went to the advisor uh, wanting to take another language, and I wanted to take Serbian, but she told me that – they didn't have Serbian, but they had Uzbek, and I should take that because that's a less commonly taught or a critical language. And I knew that Uzbekistan was in the Soviet Union. That was about all I knew. Uh, and so I figured because it was in the Soviet Union, it's probably similar to Russian. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. Uh, but uh, I really fell in love with the language, and uh, and especially when I started reading the literature, when I became proficient enough to do that. I, I actually started reading some of it in Russian translation. Um, I, I fell in love with it, and I thought that this would be kind of a, a niche thing to do. Um, so so that's really how my interest in Central Asia started. And so in the introduction, I, I mentioned that you've, you've this is actually your second published translation. So how did you uh, decide that, that translating was the kind of uh, work you wanted to pursue? Um, and why did you first choose uh, Ishan Sultan's The Eternal Wanderer? Is there any connection between doing that translation uh, that then brought you to uh, Chopin's work? Or are they, you know, is there some kind of connection there? Um, okay. So this, this kind of has two parts, I guess. Uh, I'll start with just the, the interest in translation in general. Um, well, there really aren't enough 
works of Central Asian literature in translation, which makes it very difficult uh, to teach Central Asian literature in an English language classroom. Uh, so that was uh, part of my goal in translating both of those novels. Um, and and uh, with both of them, and with Jopan especially, when I first read it, uh, it appeared to me that, you know, uh, after having read so much socialist realism, this is, or Jopan was one of the first things that I'd said to myself that this needs to be in English. Uh, the socialist realist stuff, not so much. And then regarding why I chose Isajong, uh, Sultan first. I, I actually didn't choose him first. That uh, I actually finished the translation, or at least like the first draft or manuscript uh, for Joel Pollan first. Uh, it's just uh, the Eternal Wonder happened to come out uh, first. The process was quicker. It was a shorter novel. I was curious by something you just said, which is um, and I think this will be a good way to get into talking about the translation we're, we're looking at today. You mentioned that Chopin's work, especially Night and Day, uh, stood out in contrast to a lot of the socialist realist literature that you had read. And I'm curious, like, what what are the differences between these? And is that a result of, of the time in which Chopin was writing? Or is there something specific about him as a writer? Well, I think I think both your answers are right there, that it's both <clears throat> something specific about him as a writer and uh, about the time in which he was living. So in, in the introduction, I make the argument that um, he finished writing this and submitted it to a contest in 1934. And around this time, like from 1932 to 1934, there's what you might call a, a mini thaw under Stalin that a lot of the or the the five-year plan had uh, stopped momentarily. The the purges had stopped, and there was this general time of reconciliation in which a lot of the authors who were persecuted thought that, well, maybe now is the time to reconcile. Maybe now it will be okay. And Chopin seems to have been pursuing this. And so I make the argument that he was trying to write a socialist realist novel, one that would be canonized and accepted into the Uzbek canon. But what socialist realism, what socialist realism was or was to be at this point was very much up for debate. And so he presented a very unique vision of it, one that's based within his own uh, oeuvre or uh, within his own vision of what is art. Uh, and, and that's what makes him stand out from uh, a lot of his contemporaries, especially the first generation of Uzbek socialists who were very much in the mode of that uh, politicized uh, Stalinist literature. He, he was not, he was more an aesthet or Chopin was more an aesthet. And you mentioned that um, kind of in, in, I think in a second, I want to dive deeper into Chopin's and Chopin's um, kind of background, like his educational background, what, where he was during the revolution. But in your introduction, you also mentioned uh, um, another really famous uh, Uzbek writer from this period, Abdul, Abdul Qadiri, uh, most famous for his Otkan Kunla, uh, Bygone Days. And you mentioned that um, kind of in in popular Uzbek imagination, especially among like avid readers, um, Chopin's work has been kind of overshadowed by Abdul Qadiri's, uh, I think, bygone days, especially. Um, I was wondering why why is that the case? How do you how would you compare these two works? And uh, is there a case to be made for for sharing or kind of devoting more attention towards uh, the work of Chopin and, and why? 
I, de- I definitely think there's a case to be made to devote more attention to Chopin. I, I think that Abdullah Qadri is so venerated in the Uzbek tradition because he's the first. He's the first uh, novelist, uh, the first person to figure out how to put together or to take extant material from, say, folk tales or kind of folk myths or folk narrative structures and put it into a, a novelistic form. I personally don't find his narrator to be as engaging as Chopin's. I, I don't think uh, it's, it's, Chopin has mastered this excellent mix of kind of dramatic irony, dramatic tension, poetry and prose, and humor. And, and that's not something I see as much in Quadri. Quadri has some of it. And, and so for that reason, I would put Chopin above uh, Quadri. But, but I know a, a number of Uzbeks would not agree with it. And so if we step back and, and talk about kind of, I, I kind of want to recreate the world in which uh, Chopin is operating. And he, he, he's, he's born in the late uh, Imperial Russian kind of Central Asia. Um, does his profile, does his educational background, his family background, compare to someone like Abdul Qadiri? And also what, what can these... What what does his life tell us about kind of the late empire or the experience of revolution in Central Asia? So uh, absolutely, his uh, background, his educational background, I, I believe, is more or less the same as that of Abdul Qadiri. I actually don't, I don't recall offhand where Abdul Qadiri was born, uh, but Chopin, of course, was born in Andijan in the Fergana Valley. Chopin must have gone to a maktab. I didn't find any information about that, but uh, I know his father then, after that initial primary school, enrolled him in a madrasa, but he soon changed his mind and enrolled him in a Russian school. Um, there were these native, or what we're trying to remember the, how they're translated into English, native schools that the Russians had set up that would teach uh, classes in Russian or uh, that would teach the sciences in Russian, but also have classes in the native language. And that more or less matches what Abdullah Qadri's background was. Abdullah Qadri also went to uh, one of those native schools. And so, yeah, this puts him, this puts him as, as kind of an educated um, Central, it, it, Central Asian. Is he still in the Fargana Valley when the revolution takes place, or has he moved to Tashkent or something? I know he goes to Kokhand, and is part of the the very brief Kokhand autonomy that uh, is set up after the October Revolution and then almost immediately crushed by the Tashkent Soviet, uh, which was pretty virulently racist, uh, and Lenin and Stalin later uh, put a stop to it. But yes, so he, he's involved in the revolution. He's involved in, in first, this uh, Kokhand autonomy. Later, he has these... He doesn't participate in the, in the Civil War, but he later laments um, the violence of it. And he does, uh, it, it's it's hard to say to what extent he supports the Basmachi in the Russian Civil War, but he does elegize their defeat uh, in, in a kind of romantic sense that uh, the, the nation has lost something. And is, is this in a published work or um, that seems that seems kind of surprising uh, that he's publishing this what, in, the, in 1920s? This is the early 1920s, so so that was allowable. The, the Russians didn't have that much control over what was being published. And I think uh, Khalid's book uh, speaks to that uh, quite a bit when he analyzes uh, Fitrat, especially another um, centrally, uh, another Muslim reformer, like uh, and actually kind of Chopin's mentor. 
And so when does Chopin start to, uh, so obviously he's writing throughout this period, when does he kind of make the mark as, as kind of a Soviet writer, or when does he start kind of publishing uh, for like a, a broad Soviet public, or does he ever? I'm not, I'm not really sure. A bit of a, a question I'll have to take in pieces, I guess. So yeah, sure. he becomes kind of Uzbekistan's premier poet in the early 1920s. And at this time, he's writing these elegiac lyrics, uh, sometimes elegizing the Basmachi, but also elegizing national laws. He's well-liked by a lot of the uh, poets within, within Uzbekistan, and they emulate him. But then towards the end of the 1920s, as uh, Stalinism ramps up and the party is confident that it can take control in Central Asia, Chopin becomes the most notorious of Uzbek poets, and he's universally reviled by the socialist poets. They they still seem to like his art, but they just hate his politics. And so there's actually a lot of um, sort of parodies of him when are Naziras. These, um, it's not exactly a parody, it's it's more of a, an answer to a poem. Uh, and so a lot of these socialist poets are writing answers to him. So he only becomes kind of, a, if you will, a socialist poet, like writing in support of the Soviet Union in the 1930s. And uh, and I use some of his poetry to make the argument that he wrote this novel uh, to be a socialist realist novel because in the 1930s, his poetry uh, is kind of rejecting that previous elegiac uh, personage, er, uh saying that he's op- optimistic now about the future of the Soviet Union. He praises Lenin, he praises Stalin. So yeah, th- at that point, he becomes a Soviet poet. Now, the question of whether he's writing for a mass public is another one um, because very few people were literate literate in our sense of the word literate in Central Asia at this time, which is why reformers like Cholpan so focused on drama. Poetry was more for their inner circle, I suppose. And so does this switch uh, that takes place when he starts? So in the introduction, you mentioned that he writes this novel kind of for some kind of socialist competition, right? And, and you see this as a crucial moment when he becomes kind of a Soviet writer. What was his work like up until that point? Um, I know he was mostly writing poetry. Can you tell us a little bit more of, of what his work looked like up until the writing of Night and Day? Okay, so he yes, he's mostly writing poetry. That's what he's best known for. Although it doesn't have that large of an output. Oh, but it, it's, it's substantial, I suppose. He... He's also known as a dramatist. Actually, in 1924, he goes to Moscow and joins the uh, the Uzbek drama school there. And it's, it's never been confirmed whether he meets Meyerhold or not, but I, I think he does. At least he's working in the same circles. And so he returns to Uzbekistan as a dramatist and has quite a few dramas that he pens and, and that are performed. Not many of them have survived. I think there's only three. And so, so that's what he's best known for. This is his first, in the 1930s, he writes his first novel. Actually, in the late 1920s, with his drama, he is um, more or less pro-Soviet as well. There are these moments where, like, there's these kind of where he kind of questions his own political beliefs, where he questions the Soviet beliefs, and I write about that, or, or, or Soviet po- where he questions Soviet politics, and I write about that in the introduction as well. But it does seem like uh, in the 1920s as well, he's trying to be a Soviet in the late 1920s, trying to be a Soviet writer. Right. And you said that, like, in the introduction, you mentioned that, like, a lot of his writing kind of demonstrates a little bit of indecisiveness or even, like, uh, a, a kind of rejection of, of, of 
this typical kind of socialist narrative of, of people gaining like consciousness. Um, is that something that you also see in, in night or night and day in your translation or um, does his switch towards like kind of a more pro-Soviet line uh, also change this, this time, this theme that's running throughout his work um, regarding consciousness of, of the characters? Yeah, it's, it's more the former that he is trying to be politically correct, if you will, or to toe the Soviet line, but at the same time, he's very committed to his aesthetic. And that is an aesthetic of kind of indecisiveness of uh, showing these characters almost as, as real people that are undecided. There's no future goal that is preordained that they're going to arrive at. Uh, instead, it's, or there's no utopia at the end of the, at the end of the day. It's uh, something that always eludes his characters. And that's what I see at night. That's what I see in uh, the in one of the dramas that I talk about in the introduction, one of the dramas uh, of the late 1920s that he writes, what's never published. So yeah, there's this general pro-Soviet orientation, except for that idea that utopia eludes us. And, you know, once, once again, uh, before we before we get into the, the novel, I, I kind of wanted, wanted you to elaborate on another point you make, which is about um, kind of the, that there's a camp of, Uzbek socialist writers on which Chopin is initially on the outside and then maybe is, is trying to join at some point. Um, how does, how does Jadidism, uh, this kind of like Muslim reform movement fit into uh, Chopin's work? Is, is the tension between these writers, um, Jadids on the one hand and socialist writers on the other hand, or kind of what drives these kind of polemical debates uh, happening in the 19, late 1920s and early 1930s among Uzbek writers. Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, I should probably explain who Jadids are, like very briefly. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Um, that, that was something I, I skipped over earlier. So, um, uh, people of Chopin's generation, um, uh, men and women who were educated, um, like he was, like uh, often in these uh, Russian schools. Um, be, became uh, what were uh, what were then called Jadids, uh, who pioneered or who were united by their common interests in a new method of teaching the Arabic alphabet, phonetic rather than syllabic. But they uh, they were also united by a general broader outlook of uh, reform of their societies. They believed that their societies were in decline from a previous uh, civilizational peak. Um, and their uh, their job as Muslim reformers was to uh, return piety to their people and bring about another civilizational peak. And so in the early 1920s, uh, a number of these Jadids, not Chopin though, uh, joined the Bolshevik party and used the Bolsheviks to uh, achieve some of their goals of uh, restoring their civilization, or as they were then calling it, because they were influenced by the European idea of nationalism, uh, their Central Asian nation. Uh, so they're doing this in the early 1920s. Uh, towards the mid-1920s, the Bolsheviks no longer need to um, collaborate with native actors. They have a new generation of Uzbek socialists who are who have now been trained through the Komsomol, the, the Communist uh, Youth League, and other institutions that... And this new generation now believes in Soviet ideology. So the party makes a push to oust 
these Central Asian Jadids and put in their uh, this new generation. It's my belief, and I think it's uh, Khalid's belief as well, uh, Adib Khalid, the author of Making Uzbekistan, one of, uh, a recent major book, uh, that this new socialist generation uh, believed many of the same things that the Jadids did, um, especially about uh, the central or, or about their nation, that they were there as an intellectual uh, vanguard in, in order to bring about the, or, in order to raise the consciousness of the nation. Uh, they simply thought that Jadids were too complacent, uh, not radical enough. But they also accuse them of uh, not understanding the true nature of uh, the movement of history, the social or Marxist uh, history. So that was one point of the uh, conflict between Jadids and socialists. Uh, just d- different idea, uh, different ideas on the urgency of needing to uh, bring about the rebellion of the nation. And then another point is uh, just personal competition. That's Stalinism encouraged people to denounce their uh, the previous generation in order to better their own position. Uh, and so that's what a lot of these young Uzbek socialists are doing. They're denouncing people like Joel Pond in order to uh, garner prestige for themselves. Yeah, so those are the, are the two big things, I think, that drive the conflict. And this is important because that this helps us to kind of understand, I think, uh, the context in which Chopin finally, dis- you know, writes Night, which is published, I think, in 1934. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, like, how how does, uh, in your opinion, how does Chopin's Night fit in with kind of the rise of socialist realism? Is it a socialist realist novel? Um, you know, we see a lot of uh, important themes here about women's liberation, about um, kind of the, the nature of, of colonialism, resistance, um, you know, we, we could even possibly talk about this being a post-colonial novel in some ways. So I'm wondering, like, in your opinion, how does this relate to, to socialist realism? Is, would you call uh, Chopin's work a socialist realist novel? And if so, why? If so, if not, why not? I don't think I would call it a, a socialist realist novel, but I, I think... At this time, uh, 1934, uh, it wasn't published then. It was He finished writing it then and submitted it to this contest. It was published in 36. Uh, so at this time in 34, so what socialist realism was, was still being decided. And so Knight is a potential socialist realism that didn't pan out. It Once socialist realism, as we know it today, was kind of codified, solidified, uh, became and there was a dogmatic interpretation of it. Uh, once that happened, uh, night, what, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So socialist realism was codified, solidified, and had a dogmatic interpretation to it only in the late 1930s. And it, it was then that Chopin's novel was denounced, uh, in 1937 as not fitting this dogmatic interpretation of socialist realism. And, and uh, the author was denounced as well and eventually executed. So, Yes, I, I wouldn't call it a socialist realist novel just because socialist realism is normally understood by that dogmatic interpretation. And so if it's, yeah, if it's not a socialist realist novel, uh, then what does, what does um, I don't know, you mentioned that like part of your uh, hopes in, in translating this book is that it'll, it'll serve as kind of a way to teach Central Asian literature um, 
to uh, undergraduate students uh, who don't know Uzbek. And I'm wondering, like, what what kind of lessons do you think reading this kind of literature uh, can tell us about either the 1930s, the 1920s, or even uh, pre-revolutionary Central Asia? Um, what are the big themes that we should pull out of uh, Chopin's work? Uh, well, there's certainly uh, the question of coloniality or post-coloniality. Uh, post you, you earlier suggested that uh, this novel might be termed a post-colonial novel. So Chopin gives us a, a, a certain picture of what colonial life was like under the Russian Empire. And you can read uh, certain things about, or, or you can read a, a certain allegory. I tend not to, um, but other other author or other commentators have read an allegory about how that colonialism uh, continues under the Soviet Union. Uh, so there's that. Do you care to elaborate a little bit on that? Um, so what 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 do those scholars say, and and how would you how how do you read it differently? What, yeah, these are the kind of fun details that we want to. So in the introduction, I think I briefly mentioned that. Um, uh, a lot of other scholars have read this novel. Um, a lot of other scholars have read this novel as an allegory for uh, the Soviet Union's corruption or uh, kind of crushing of uh, native Uzbeks, what have you. Uh, I tend not to read it in that way, uh, precisely because I think he was trying to put forward a a novel that would work with socialist realism or that would support the Soviet state, more or less. Uh, he was just committed to his aesthetic, and that's uh, what would make it, uh, what uh, what would make the novel incompatible with what later would become socialist realism. And so, but, but what about some of the other issues that we see? So, for instance, you know, the book is kind of centered around um, a woman who's kind of forced into to a marriage. So, um, there's a lot about social relations, the institution of, of kind of arranged marriages. Is this? Do you see this as like a, a social critique of like of Chopin's contemporary society, or is it more about kind of the ways in which uh, Russian colonial power like reified these relationships? Like, what 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 is he criticizing? And do you think that's coming from like the Jadid in him? Is this kind of a a typical Jadid critique, or is there something else unique going on here? I, I think it's a very typical Jadid critique, and one that worked uh, as a so, as a socialist critique of the Russian Empire as well. So that that's I think that's a lot of what's coming through here, and that, and that's where I think the novel would be useful uh, teaching teaching how the early Soviet Union allowed uh, particular Jadid critiques to fit with. Or, or the early Soviet Union made room for particular Jadid critiques to work uh, with socialist critiques uh, of empire. Yeah, so so that's where this would be useful for teaching uh, post-coloniality too. And if you don't mind, I was actually, uh, another thing I was thinking about is kind of moving the conversation in a different direction. I was curious about your experience kind of translating this work. Um, you mentioned that like Chalpan is a very important figure to Uzbek poetry. And even like he, he kind of had some, he introduced kind of some pioneering features into Chagatai poetry. I'm curious, like um, 
One, if you could just talk a, a little bit more about kind of what makes him such a, an important figure to Uzbek poetry, what kind of changes did he introduce, and whether or not you saw them, those kind of uh, features in his in, in uh, night, or, and and then like if you could also talk about kind of the translation process and um, do you did you feel that like translating into this, into English you lose some of that context or um, yes what what is lost and what is gained through the process of translation so that's kind of a multi-parted question but um, I think. Really, yeah, and I can repeat it if need be, but I think we're really lucky to have the translator. So I was curious what you thought about all of these uh, bigger kind of uh, technical questions. Yeah, okay. Uh, so regarding Joe Pollard as a poet, yes, he he is one of the major innovators of Chigatai and then what would, or what's now called, or sorry, um, uh, the Uzbek literary literary language so chikatai, would you mind uh, elaborating like what what is meant by chikatai and what is meant by uzbek and uh sure so uh chikatai refers to what is kind of a, a cosmopolitan language um of the pre-modern era uh it's not a language that ordinary people spoke it's more a language that was used for literature for official documents it is this admixture of persian Turkic and Arabic. And there was a specific uh, type of poetry really based on uh, Persian poetry in which, or the, the poetry of Chigatai is based on the, or the, the meters of the poetry of Chigatai are based on the interchange of long and short vowels, uh, which actually doesn't work that well for Turkic languages. And so that was one of uh, Chopin's innovations in creating this new Uzbek literary language in the 1920s that was more that would uh, that was more based on the way people spoke, uh, not on this kind of ornate cosmopolitan Chigatai language. Chopin and a number of his other contemporaries introduced what's called barmo, um, a finger meter. Uh, it's just a syllabic meter. There are a fixed number of syllables in each line that generally does sound better, I think. That might just be personal opinion. Uh, it sounds better than the interchange of long and short vowels uh, for, for a Turkic language. And, and Chopin certainly thought that. Uh, so that's where he's the, the biggest innovator. Uh, innovator. Uh, he had kind of mastered this new uh, form of, uh, of meter. And then the other part of your question was just the, the question of translation. So, what, what is lost and what is gained? That's right. Yeah, and and what kind of what what kind of difficulties did you face when translating? Um, I mean, this is this is a huge undertaking. So I'm just curious, like, what goes into this whole process? And you, as someone who who is able to like kind of really immerse themselves in both sides of of both in the Uz, the original Uzbek and then kind of thinking very critically about how to render that into English, I was curious, like, yeah, well, what kind of strategies did you have for translating, and what do you think was kind of lost, perhaps, or you know, and also gained in in the process? Luckily, there's nothing to do with meter. Uh, in the original text, it's it's all prose. Uh, it, it's not like say Andre Bailey's Peter Borg, where there is this kind of this meter that comes within the middle of the prose that's impossible to, for a translator to, to capture. Uh, what's most poetic in the original uh, is something that I think I've been able to retain more or less. Are these kind of long flowing metaphors uh, 
in effect, there's a there's a certain indecisiveness to Chopin's. Uh, I make this argument in the introduction that uh, Chopin has these indecisive characters that match his own indecisiveness. Uh, there's an indecisiveness in his prose. Uh, he tries two or three metaphors, rather than just sticking with one metaphor, he often tries two or three, like uh, as if he can't decide which one is best, so he just lists them all. Uh, and that, and that I, I felt I was able to capture. That, that's something I, uh, that, I, that I can do. What was difficult to capture? Well, because it's a, an historical novel, and, and even even if it weren't, because it's, it's, only, it's only 20 years displaced from uh, that time, there are just a lot of cultural realia that are hard to uh, translate for the English later. Uh, English language reader. So uh, I tried my best to kind of convey that with footnotes to give context um, or uh, to gloss a few words. Uh, I wanted to gloss more words, but the, the publishers said, you know, you can't do that many. It, it'll be too uh, disorienting for the reader. So yeah, I guess those were some of the difficulties I encountered. Uh, other ones were really just uh, questions of uh, historical detail. And so for those, I would kind of turn to um, experts in the field, like, like Adib Khalid or uh, Mary Akiyab, uh consulted with me on this uh, quite a bit when I was in Indiana for a time. Uh, so there's that. Oh, okay. Now, now I've kind of, there, there were some things that I, I never quite solved, I suppose. Um, uh, some metaphors that I asked around and I, I couldn't quite get at why those particular metaphors were being used or what they were supposed to convey. So I, I, I left, I rendered them kind of word for word and I just hope that they're, <laughs> the English language reader will probably can't get them as Topon intended them because I couldn't get them, but they'll retain some of that beauty of the original prose. And so there's something Something lost and something gained, just lost to time that even Uzbeks nowadays don't know. And I think there were other parts in the book where um, there were even disputes about like how some how something should be translated based on how one read. Um, I don't know something to do with the vowel harmony of the original. Um, I remember a couple footnotes like that. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of took a, a textological approach just because this is. Or just because this this manuscript was originally written in a different alphabet that uh, can uh, can have different renderings into um, the contemporary al- alphabet into the contemporary language, so I tried to warn readers about um, what that could mean. So yeah, there's there's something definitely uh, lost there. And so, how many? Um, I'm I'm curious about kind of the history of different publications of the book because, as we've kind of alluded to, but I think deserves more attention, like. The book was published in, you said in 1936, right? Uh, yes. Yes, in Uzbek. Correct. And then is it translated into Russian um, or, you know, uh, not, because not until what? 1988 or 1989. Okay. So the timeline is he publishes the book in, in 1936 in Uzbek. Um, he, he is uh, executed as part of the Great Purges in 1937. The book is pulled from the shelves. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, arrested. The book is pulled from the shelves in 37. He's executed in 38. Oh, he's sorry. Yeah. He's executed in 38. Um, and then it doesn't make a return until uh, the late 80s. Right? Correct. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, he's actually rehabilitated in 1956, but for whatever reason, he's still kind of considered untouchable. And there are even stories of uh, someone trying to, or actually the the scholar who's most, uh, who was Tolkien's biggest advocate in the 1980s and got this novel republished uh, in the 1960s, tried to republish a few poems of his, but was, but the publication was stopped by uh, Rashidov himself. Uh, Rashidov being the uh, the first Communist Party secretary um, in Uzbekistan in the nineteen sixties. In the nineteen sixties, and so which so were you using the original uh, nineteen thirty six uh, publication when you were translating, or did you consult multiple versions of the text? Um, and did the Russian translations help you at all? Yes, to all of us. <laughs> so yeah, I was using the nineteen thirty uh, the nineteen thirty six text. Uh, consulting with all these other ones. There's this great academic version that came out recently uh, that was really helpful. And yes, the, the Russian uh, translation was helpful as well. Um, also, uh, Stéphane Dourignol has a French translation that my French isn't that great. So on, I only used it on those parts that I had real trouble with. Uh, like I, I put that French into Google Translate and then I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, got the gist of it. Uh, and what happened, um, you know, I, I think another question I had was um, about the fact that actually this, it's called night and day, but you, you've, you, you only, we only have access to half of the book. Um, do you know, like, was the other half, so it, it's night and day. So we have, you have translated night here. Do we know what happened to the original text of day? Was it even completed? Um, I know this is kind of like a, a historical mystery, but I was wondering if you could uh, share a little bit of information about uh, the sec- the kind of second half of the book. Sure. Uh, or the sequel, rather. Right, right. Uh, yes, uh, he did plan a sequel. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, he, he mentions having already completed a sequel in a 1937 article. Uh, and uh, the NKVD reports, which I haven't seen, but they've been quoted to be, or they've been, they're quoted in a book by an Uzbek scholar, uh, report that uh, a manuscript. So this is the secret, the secret police, right? Right. Uh, report that a manuscript was con- confiscated from uh, Chopin, uh when he was arrested in 1937. Uh, so that was probably the sequel. Um, There were some rumors that the sequel had made its way to Xinjiang, um, but those are probably rumors. And my understanding is that the NKVD, um, if they couldn't make any more arrests using the material that they confiscated from someone, uh, they would burn that material. And so that's probably what happened. This is really interesting because I I think there's kind of a... um like an interesting uh, history here of, of, of the several translations. Um, and, and for that reason, I think it's really important that you, you translated this text. I guess, how do you deal with the, the issue of, of writing, uh, of translating half of the text? And then, um, I mean, do you, do you have any kind of ideas of what he might've written about in, in the second text or um, is it, is it all, based on speculation at this point, I mean, uh, do we, is there kind of a, 
Yeah. So there's no archival history of of who someone else who might have read this text or something. It's 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 completely lost as far as we know. Um, yeah, as far as we know, there might be archival evidence. Um, the secret police archives in Uzbekistan were open for only uh, only a brief time in the 1990s, and only to a select few scholars. And now I believe they're closed to everyone. So it could. Or, or there could be a report of some uh, secret police officer having read it. It's entirely possible, but uh, yeah, I, I can only speculate as to what it contained based on the other things that Chopin has written. Uh, and I do that a little bit in the introduction. Uh, but I, I think my main argument would be that the the incomplete form as we have it now, the the lack of this sequel... Serendipitously conforms to Chopin's uh, aesthetic of kind of incompletion or indecisiveness. Uh, this this book lacks an ending, much like uh, his characters uh, lack a kind of conclusion to their narrative selves. Is that an eloquent way of putting it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's actually like a really good way of kind of wrapping up this. Um, you know, there there is a little bit of a uh, um, tragedy that the reader has to deal with in, in seeing that, like, you know, especially considering the way that he was executed and then the way that his work was potentially lost. I think um, it, it does create for a, a kind of interesting connection between the reader and that historical period. Um, and I think that's like what you've just said is actually a really good way of conceptualizing that. Um, I think that's also a really good place to kind of end our discussion. Um, so Chris, I really wanted to thank you again for your time. This has been a really interesting, um, you know, and, and somewhat atypical for us uh, discussion on, on not a scholarly piece of work, but actually this translation. And I'm, I'm really confident that we've piqued the interest of our listeners about this, uh, this valuable contribution. So I wanted to thank you for coming and thank you for, Putting all in, putting all this effort into the translation process, um, and I was hoping before we part ways that you could tell us about any new projects, either translations or publications that you might be working on. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so I or planning uh, um, I and another group of scholars are hoping to put together an anthology of Central Asian literature that would include translated literature from all the five republics plus Xinjiang. And that's in progress now. We're, we're, uh, we're getting submissions. Uh, we haven't yet received all of them. And then the next thing I'd like to do is translate uh, Abdullah Kakor's Tales from the Past. This is a novella uh, that was published in 1966 uh, about the author's uh, childhood uh, reminiscences from the pre-Soviet period. And, um, it, it is a socialist realist text. Uh, he shows almost in, the same, in a similar way to, to what Chopin does, kind of the, the terrible, uh, the terribleness of uh, the pre-Soviet period in, with the implication that the Soviet period provided a, a panacea to all these ill the societal ills. But, but it's, it's fairly interesting. And again, it can be used uh, to talk about the, unique situation of post-coloniality is the Soviet Union uh, post-colonial uh, is it or or does it continue to be a colonial state and how 
and, and to what extent was that perceived by the authors of these texts? So yeah, that uh, that's the next project. Those both sound really great, and you know, uh, I definitely am looking forward to that, and I hope that you'll decide to come back on to the show and, and give us another interview. Um, and I just wanted to share for the listeners, uh, if you liked the interview that, that and, and the themes that we we're discussing today, please, please check out uh, Night and Day, um, originally written by Abdul Hamid Sulaiman Ogle Chopin, uh, recently translated by Christopher Fort and published by Academic Studies Press. Um, and on that note, uh, Chris, I wanted to thank you again um, for for coming on the show. And um, yeah, we look forward to your to your future translations. Thank you. All right, thank you for having me. <laughs>